The long weekend is one week away, and the May long weekend is always the unofficial kickoff to the summer. The summer of 2016 will prove to be just as active and as exciting as summers past with all of the festivals that take place in and around the Metro Vancouver area. And one of my favorite things on any given weekend is the the various night markets that we have throughout the communities. The Panda Market is already open. That was the what was uh, previously known as the International Summer Night Market. And uh, their plan is to bring the globe to you. Uh, diverse food and beverages. I know, Amila, you've been to the, the summer markets uh, at nighttime. What, what's the draw for, for someone like yourself? For me, I think it would be all the different kinds of foods that you could get, like potatoes, spiral potatoes on sticks. There's like deep fried everything that you everything. could think of. Yeah. <laughs> and in the summertime, you just want ice cream and deep fried Oreos. It's what's the want. strangest thing you've eaten at a night market? Um... Probably like a little squid, just like hanging off a toothpick, walking around, just casually <laughs> eating it. <laughs> and everybody's enjoying it, right? Oh, totally. I've p- seen people like corn on the cob in one hand and then like a giant hot dog in the other. It's awesome. Yeah, so there's all the vendors, there's the food. I think that what the Panda Market, at least their claim, is that what they are doing is they are putting on a market that is as close to what you would find in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, and uh, some food that that is just not uh, readily available to to most of us on most days. And uh, admission is always free, so they're just off of Vulcan Way down by uh, Home Depot. Then there's the Richmond Night Market, uh, also hundreds of vendors and food stalls. And I guess what makes this one attractive is right by the casino and right off the Canada Line. There is an admission. I think it's uh, two seventy five. Kids ten and under. And I think seniors are also admitted for free. North Vancouver Shipyards Night Market, uh, Farmers at Night uh, atmosphere. If you like that kind of uh, rural feeling of a real honest-to-goodness farmer's market, this is the place. There's food trucks. Uh, the addition of live music in a beer garden has been a huge hit. Fridays from 5 till 10 and admission in North Vancouver is free. The Surrey Night Market opens June 3rd, and it's a feature every Friday and Saturday night at the Cloverdale Exhibition Grounds. And uh, the other question that was dealt earlier this morning when it comes to summer activities on Jill Bennett show was the changing weather that we've been having around the world, many would say, certainly here on the South Coast, and and, and how that weather has had a dramatic effect on the fair at the p and And they have undertaken through a polling firm to ask people in British Columbia what their thoughts are on changing the historic end of summer dates to a midsummer window. So for, I've lived in Vancouver all my life and since I've been going to the p and as a child, it's always been the last couple of weeks of August and then ending on Labor Day. They're, they're thinking those last two weeks of August are some of the wettest all summer. Why not move it to the middle of the summer months and perhaps get better weather and better attendance? Or is the peony relevant in 2016? Peony and 17 days of so much fun for so many people still. And the other side of it is all the people that work at the peony, who count on the peony, who met their first love at the peony took their first scary ride at the Peony, saw their first concert at the Peony. There's, there's a lot going on there and a lot to think about. You can uh, take that poll 
on their website if you like, if you're, if you're interested in engaging and giving your opinion on whether you think the dates should or could be changed, peony.ca is their website. As you know, today is the first day that lawn sprinkling restrictions take effect in Metro Vancouver, uh, starting today through October 15th, and this is to help conserve and ensure an adequate supply of water for the Metro Vancouver area, particularly treated drinking water. Under the lawn sprinkling regulations, watering lawns is permitted only in the morning. This avoids evening hours when demand for water is at its highest domestic use, including dishwashing, laundry, and showers. They've obviously never been to my place. Uh, Restrictions apply to lawn sprinkling only and not to watering your flowers, vegetables, shrubs, and trees. The Metro Vancouver says that uh, this year they're going to crack down and make sure that everybody is abiding by the rules. So they say on average approximately 1 billion liters of water is used daily in Metro Vancouver. Uh, This quantity has increased to a million and a half billion liters daily during the summer. I don't, can't even put that into some kind of perspective. Even number addresses uh, sprinkle from 4 till 9 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. If you're an odd-numbered address, your lawn is uh, good to go 4 till 9 a.m. Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Now, this whole concept of having a perfectly green manicured lawn we've discussed many times is probably something best left in the last century. So there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. There's a website that you might want to have a look at rather than sort of say, well, I'm restricted by these these watering rules. What can I do about them? And I think that Metro Vancouver's come up with a, a pretty good idea on their website. It's growinggreenguide.ca. It's a site that was put together by Metro Vancouver and UBC Botanical Garden. And there's two sections on the website. Design your own garden. Quick and easy online quiz to help you to create a personalized, eco-friendly garden. And that's a great place to start. Have a plan with any kind of project that you're thinking about. And then on the other side of that website, it's find the right plant. So an opportunity for you to browse from a collection of non-invasive, and that's important, non-invasive plants to find the best choices for your garden. Again, that website is growgreenguide.ca. I've had a look at it. It's pretty easy to follow and, and some great ideas and alternatives to what we might traditionally think of as our yard, our front lawn. We want to keep up the curb appeal, but not necessarily worry too much about having a lawn. And if you've got Schaefer beetles, and so many people in Metro Vancouver do, maybe you don't want a lawn at all. Maybe you don't want grass. Although I'm told if you do, fescue is the way to go. Coming up next... We're going to do a skinny TV checkup on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. Mike Agrabo is recognized as one of Canada's leading tech experts. Some people just say he's a geek. You'll recognize him as the host of Get Connected on CKNW, as well as his Get Connected TV show. He's a regular tech segment contributor to many media outlets, including uh, you see him uh, practically uh, weekly, or is it daily on global TV, Mike? Uh, A couple times a week at least. Yeah. 
Uh, you're, you're, uh, when I say you're a geek, you know that I mean that with the most affection possible. <laughs> of course, Ian, of course. And you wear that with great pride, I know that. But the, I, I do. One of the things that I like about Get Connected, and I enjoy the show uh, Saturday mornings on CKNW, is that uh, you manage to make it uh, palatable for both those that really are geeks and people like me that just want to be geeks. I appreciate that. Uh, it's, a, it's a great compliment. There's so much technology out there uh, in the world right now, and it's, it's just growing exponentially. So uh, I love talking about it and uh, getting people inspired. The reason I called you today, Mike, is to get an update on where we are with something that we covered only a short time ago, cable TV and the so-called $25 skinny packages. And it seems that nobody's happy, not the providers <laughs> and not the CRTC who put these rules in place. Yeah, the uh, CRTC mandated that uh, the big cable companies uh, had to, as of March 1st, offer a $25 a month uh, basic skinny cable package. Uh, but, you know, when I, when I heard that news, I thought, yeah, that, that sounds great. But at the same time, uh, you know, these cable companies uh, need to make money as well. So it's not like they're just going to start throwing uh, money out, out the window. So I, I think what's happened, uh, you know, the cold reality uh, essentially is that, yeah, they have those basic $25 packages, but there's a lot of uh, add-ons that basically bring the, the price uh, right back up again. As I understand it, uh, only around 66,000 people, this is for the entire country, have actually signed up for that so-called $25 per month entry-level package. In other words, the uptake is almost nothing. Uh, no, it hasn't been that uh, much uh, at all. And you know, when you look at the number of uh, cabled households uh, in Canada, which is uh, over 11 million, uh, you know, that is a, a very tiny percentage. You know, the challenge essentially is that, uh, you know, the idea is that you get the basic cable package and then you're supposed to be able to pick and choose the channels you want and smaller uh, channel bundles, uh, you know, 10 channels or less. Uh, but uh, it gets really expensive. And on top of that, uh, most of the cable providers also make you pay to uh, rent the cable box or a, a PVR box. So, you know, literally these uh, these basic packages start getting up anywhere to you know from 50 to 100 dollars pretty quickly did the crt miscalculate or did they misunderstand what canadians were were asking for well i I think they heard what canadians are asking for but maybe they didn't give enough uh uh criteria as to what you know they should expect uh you know from the uh, the cable company so um you know again you can't just go to a business and say you need to cut your price in half uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, these cable companies need to make that money up somehow. So, uh, you know, that's essentially what they, they did. So you're not going to get the discounts that, uh, you know, the larger bundles uh, have, uh, you know, if you've got a phone and all that stuff uh, as well. So, uh, you know, now the CRTC said uh, this week that they're going to review the whole thing and get back to uh, the Canadian public on uh, the next steps. Would you have predicted this outcome? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I heard that they're going to make them do the, the basic package, I thought, yes, for sure. Uh, you know, people, you know, I had lots of friends saying, this is fantastic. I'll be able to get that $25 package, and then I can, you know, pick up the channels I want, you know, for a couple bucks uh, a piece a month. And I'm, I'm saying, no, uh, you know, if you want the popular channels, like the sports channels, those are going to be anywhere from like 10 to $25 a month. And, and lo and behold, that's how much they're coming in at. Yeah. I wonder if it is if it were not for live sports on television. Uh, it seems to me there would be a lot more people that uh, may not have a subscription at all. I, I think you're totally right there. Uh, I think the big reason that a lot of people still have cable TV um, is is the live sports. Also, 
uh, news, uh, people like the news, and uh, some people are just not totally comfortable yet with uh, the whole uh, digital subscription thing with uh, things like Netflix and, and Show Me and, and Crave. Do we know how many people have discontinued services with a provider? It's uh, it's basically plateauing, so they're not seeing any growth uh, as far as new cable uh, subscribers. Uh, it's, it's essentially just kind of keeping uh, an even plateau at this point. But I think we'll start seeing over the next few years uh, more and more people uh, cutting the cord. And, you know, that's why a lot of the big guys like the Shaw, Rogers and Bells are uh, coming up with these digital services to uh, compete with uh, the Netflixes of the world. So Show Me is a, a partnership between Rogers and Shaw. Uh, Bell launched their own called Crave. Uh, so I think uh, those types of services are going to become more and more popular, and we'll probably see some other alternatives from uh, you know the big cable guys uh, as well. I understand that Show Me and Crave are actually doing fairly well, but I'm wondering in the case of what's happening with this so-called skinny TV package, if this is a case of the technology getting ahead of the speed at which some of these providers are able to adjust. Uh, it, there's no question technology is advancing rapidly uh, now. Uh, you won't believe what's going to happen in the next five years as uh, far as uh, content. You know, we know about Netflix. Uh, we know about Show Me and Crave. But uh, a lot of the other big guys are getting into the game uh, as well. YouTube is uh, talking about launching their unplugged service. We don't know too many details, but it's supposed to be competing against, uh, you know, Hulu, Netflix, uh, those type of uh, providers. Amazon, which we haven't really seen much here in Canada, but they have their own video streaming service down in the U.S. There's no question they'll be launching that uh, up into our country. And we don't even know about Apple yet. There's all sorts of rumors about them uh, coming up with their own content service uh, as well. So, um, you know, cable's not going to die anytime soon. There's still millions of people that love it. And you know what? When you look at it, it's a pretty good value uh, for all the, the channels and content uh, you get on a monthly sure. basis. But uh, it, it will change dramatically over the next five to ten years. And I would also argue that uh, the, the, the providers, the TV providers, have also gotten better at delivering uh, a good signal to your home. Very much so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just interested to see how the, the big guys, uh, you know, work this all out. You know, we've seen them uh, basically buying up all the broadcasters uh, in Canada. So there's, you know, lots of consolidation. You know, there's no question that they, they saw this coming. That's why they're going after the actual content uh, broadcasters uh, and, and makers. So, um, you know, I, I think they'll probably do okay in, in the, the coming years. They seem to be adapting. Uh, it, it is tough, though. You know, we've seen this with uh, the music industry in the past, how that got shaken up uh, very, very quickly and, and changed dramatically. And, uh, you know, TV is that uh, that next realm that this is going to happen to. What is the, the, the current thinking in terms of the public's want and willingness to pay for subscription services for television uh, rather than this uh, this notion that a lot of people would argue that uh, people that are of a certain age, let's say 35 or under, that, that grew up firsthand with the Internet, that if it's on the Internet, it's mine to take? Yeah, you know, there is that mentality that uh, everything should be free, but I think we're starting to see uh, the younger people uh, get into the subscription side. And, you know, you brought up a great point. You know, the, the cable customer, you know, is almost, you could say, dying. Uh, all the young people that I talk to under 30 years of age, they do not have cable TV. They get all of their content 
through either things like YouTube or uh, subscription services like uh, Netflix. But, uh, you know, from the, the, the younger folks that I do talk to, they are paying for those subscriptions. So they don't seem to have a problem when uh, the content uh, is good and varied. So they'll pay for the content they want. So this takes me back to the whole skinny TV thing, because my understanding is of what people want, they, want, they don't want a package. They just want what they want, and they want to be able to order everything, and I mean everything a la carte. Yeah, you know, we're really that uh, on-demand uh, culture now, and that's what, uh, you know, the millennials and the, the younger folk uh, have uh, really grown up with. You know, they don't have to wait around for uh, the content to basically appear, uh, you know, the show to come on at 8 o'clock. Uh, if they want to watch something, they want to watch it right now, and, you know, the services are there to basically uh, offer that. So, um, you know, that's basically, I think, how uh, the, the future of content is uh, basically going to go. The CRTC's initial idea was to maximize choice and affordability for Canadian TV viewers. That's what they said. And, and somehow, and I, and I I like to believe that they were honest in their attempt to, to make that happen. So where's the shortcoming? I, I don't know if uh, they fully took in uh, the, the changing demographic of uh, of the uh, the viewers and potential customers and, and basically where they're going to get their their content uh, essentially so um i don't know if their crystal ball is as clear as some of the uh, other providers uh, are out there uh, i i don't think they fully understood that um you know the people that already have cable get cable um you know you, you've seen with the subscriber numbers only sixty six thousand people have taken uh this basic package up you know it's not lighting the world on fire by any stretch and i really don't think those sixty six thousand people are younger people or millennials i i'm betting dollars to donuts it's existing you know 35 plus uh age customers i read one report where it said that canadians felt let down and not let down as in but you know in the in the sense that they felt disappointed that they didn't really get what they wanted i yeah i would feel that way as well you know it came out with great fanfare the crtc's looking after uh the consumer the little guy they're you know trying to make uh, uh cable packages more uh, affordable um, so, you know, I think there was some expectation uh, that uh, that would basically happen. But, you know, again, when I saw, you know, the news initially, I just thought, yeah, but, you know, the cable providers, they still got to make money. Uh, they still have to pay all the broadcasters and, and content producers. So yeah. it's not like they're going to just suddenly cut millions of dollars off their bottom line. Yeah, no, I hear you, and I agree with you. And I appreciate your time, Mike Agarbo from Get Connected on CKNW. And, of course, you can see him on television on Global a couple of two, three times a week. Thanks so much for taking some time, Mike. Have a great weekend. Always a pleasure. And we'll be back on Vancouver Consumer. We're going to talk about Vancouver's favorite sport. Not hockey, not soccer, not football. Real estate. Next on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. Phil Agree was born and raised on the North Shore and has a long standing in the media, marketing, management, and for the past seven or eight years as a very successful realtor, now with Keller Williams. I invited Phil to join us today because he has a unique and positive outlook on the Metro Vancouver housing market, including so-called millennials and people who are getting into real estate for the very first time. Phil, nice to have you with us. Thanks for your time. Good morning, Ian. Thank you for having me. You bet. Let's talk about first-time buyers. Uh, everybody talks about first-time buyers. And uh, I spoke to Josh Gordon yesterday. Uh, he was on uh, with uh, John Meyer and myself. And 
He said that uh, among many things that he said, uh, well, part of what he said was uh, that uh, we have a lot of foreign investment that's coming into this area, much of which isn't being taxed. But let's put that to the side for a moment, because one of his earlier topics was it's not just first-time buyers that are in trouble necessarily in this market because they're having a problem getting into the market. It's also people that have this so-called mountain of cash that they're sitting on, and and it goes under the the heading of equity. And I think that you might take a a differing view. So let's start with the first-time buyer. Where do you see that as as a realistic uh, starting point for this conversation? Well, I think the key term there is starting point. And, and the biggest disappointment is not a lot of people want to start somewhere. You know, they, um, they, they want a great place. I want to move into a beautiful two-bedroom, two-bathroom place, and it's already done up. And this isn't everybody. And I'm, I'm, I'm generic, being generic here and, and sort of um, not trying to stereotype all people. But, you know, all of my friends are in real estate, and I know you as you grew up, we got into any place we could, and, and we started fixing it up. And it wasn't the dream place. You know, you got in there, and you started to build some equity. But that was a lot harder. I mean, I, I know back in the olden days, but, you know, when I bought my first home, it was, uh, it was 13% interest out there, <laughs> which meant a $300,000 mortgage was, you know, over, over $3,000 a month. Now, incomes haven't gone up that much. Now you can get a 3000 $300,000 mortgage for about $1,200. And and it still shocks me that I think the biggest stumbling block for first-time buyers is not starting. And and sadly, it's you you listen to all the media, their parents, everyone saying, my child, my children will never be able to be afford, they'll never be able to afford. I go, that's just not a realistic thing to say. You, you might as well tell them they're not very intelligent and they're not very attractive every day. What kind of, you know, what kind of impact is that going to have on people? Yes, I, I love you, children, but you're you're not very attractive. Yeah, not very bright either. So what you know, when I look at it and go, you know, right now there's just just in the real estate board of Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valley MLS, there's about sixteen hundred active places that are between one hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand dollars, three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and and half of those are two bedrooms or more. Well, is the, tr- you know? is the problem then the down payment? Because I don't know when you started out, but when I was trying to get into the market, I was told the same thing. You'll yeah. never own. You'll never own your own home. Because, I mean, real estate has been appreciating as long as I can remember. I mean, I know that there have been some down cycles in the market. You can think about the ni- early 1980s as, as one example, or there was a period there where some people were paying in the 20% zone. But but this notion of uh, being young and, and getting started on the ladder of real estate uh, is not new, is it? So I'm wondering, what Absolutely. what is it today that's different? Is it the down payment is not as easy to get? Uh, actually, I think it's the attitude is, is the biggest problem here. Um, and when I ask people, I'll never be able to come up with the down payment. Like the whole down payment, how much do you have now? Do you have five hundred dollars even saved, or fifteen hundred, or a thousand? And 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 I looked when, like I said, and, and I know I'm not trying to oversimplify this. It's a tough thing talking real estate. There's so much negativity out there. But but I just went, okay, well, is there anything on right now for one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Yeah, there's about eight hundred places out there. So that's going to take about twelve thousand five hundred dollars down. And you know, for an average one in that price range, and you're talking about eleven $1, hundred dollars a month mortgage. And you'll have some extra expenses and whatnot, but 
I mean, what if it's 1500 all in and it's an insured mortgage? And what are you renting for? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the other thing with that super low interest rate is that almost half of your monthly mortgage payment is going directly to the principal. I mean, people are buying in, starting somewhere, and they're building equity right away. I've met a number of young people that are on their second and third apartment because they simply started somewhere, walked in with a can of paint and a paintbrush, and tore out their own carpets and said, I'm not going to give rent away for nothing anymore. But so many people are talking to mortgage brokers or their banks saying, what do I really need? Oh, okay, how long do I need a job? Let me let me get the information rather than say it can't be done. Mm-hmm. And so many parents and grandparents are stepping up to the plate saying, Hey, you know what? Ten grand? Yeah, I can help you out with that, or you need fifteen, here's ten. And even if it's a loan to pay back to them, now they're in the real estate market. And as their payment, you know, they're paying down that mortgage and hopefully the uh, condos appreciate that now you're in. Now, three years, five years, you've got some equity and you could move through the real estate industry. But it's just that absolute blind, I can't do it. I'll never have a down payment. It'll never work. And um, What kind of a down payment? Let's, let's look at this $250,000 sure. model. What, what, do you, what do you need for a down payment and what do you get for $250,000? Well, like I said, even when I ran out between uh, the condos out there under 350, there was 1,600 active, and 50% of them were two bedrooms. So, you know, get into a place, get a roommate. I, I just helped some lovely people, a uh, family come in, and their daughter was going to go to university here. I found her a two-bedroom place. Um, it, it was about 350 or somewhere around there. They helped her with a down payment. She had roommates begging to be able to live with her, um, and, and would $1,000 or 1200 be okay a month? Well, that's just about the whole mortgage payment. So that's how I bought my first home. I went and did it with a buddy, and we were roommates. You know, we, we hadn't earned the right to say, I live, have my own home and I live on my own. I, I had, we hadn't built up to that level of equity. So, so you can get some nice places. Um, even North Van, it's funny, I'm, I'm listing a place tomorrow. It's a little one-bedroom place over in North Van. It's $240,000. The yeah. small one-bedroom in a gorgeous complex. I mean, I looked at one the other day that was listed for $180,000 in North Vancouver. Just small, one-bedroom apartments starting out. But 100% of that mortgage payment is not going to rent and nowhere. So is it an unwillingness then for people to have to fix up, to have to put on a coat of paint, or to maybe live in an area that might be a couple of blocks away from where they really like to be? Or do they have to go farther afield? They're, I guess they see some sacrifice, and, and I'm trying to determine what is that sacrifice, if one exists at all. You know what? I, I know what you mean. And and that's a fair assumption. Some people want what they want. I get it. But there's a lot more millennials and smart young people out there that have simply been put in the position by being told by every media and their parents and everything, you'll never be able to afford and you can't do this and you can't. So they simply don't do it. The conversation isn't how can they do it? It's you can't do it. And I think that's why I love the opportunity to talk to you and say, wow, I've got so many friends and people and families I deal with that are now helping their child start out. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them are out there and watching their kids pay a thousand, twelve, fifteen hundred bucks a month rent that's going nowhere. So I think we need another mindset. I think we need to stop the conversation. I get 
there is massive in, influence from immigration and things like that. Like I say, well, if we need to put a stop to immigration, I'll get on board. I'm guessing I'm going to have to start with my grandfather that came here about 60 years ago. We'll go retroactive in that, you know, and, and get rid of all my family. You know, he came in from Scotland 60 years ago. Fisherman had good money. We yeah. live in an outstanding place. I don't think with, that I don't think there's many people that argue uh, with immigration. Uh, there may be some. I think most of us are are open arms. You know, come yeah, uh, be part be part of our community, be part of our economy, all of that. I think where some of the concerns come in when we hear the horror stories of shadow flipping. Uh, that's not necessarily an immigration issue, but 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 there has been some suggestion that that is happening in with the, some of the Asian money that's coming into this part of the world, and then there's the other aspect too that people are concerned about, and perhaps rightly so, that maybe uh, some of this foreign money isn't being fairly taxed as is the the home money. Well, I, I absolutely agree. There's definitely a fear out there. The prices have gone up. We live in an extraordinary place. Prices will continue to go up. But the problem is here is, and people really want somebody to blame, you know, and, and how can you not? You hear all the media stories, oh, it's their fault, it's their fault. And, and I looked at it going, wow, somebody had some study where 60% of the homes over the $4 million mark were, uh, were being sold to the Asian market. I said, well, all right, are we aware that when I just, just ran the, the numbers in the past year, only 5% of the homes in the market were over $4 million. And over $2 million, it's only about 25% of the homes. So 75% aren't there. There's no first-time buyers I, that I see, in my opinion, that are competing with big Asian money coming in or big money from, from Iran or anywhere else around the world. Like, so, so, so what so you're let's saying is them. Let's separate them these up. very expensive properties that – that are going over that because we're, we're being told now, if you believe the headlines that four or $5 million may quickly become the norm. Yeah. Well, 75% of the homes in the past uh, 12 months were sold between 500,000 and 2 million. I mean, let's take it down to 1.5 million, 60% of the homes were sold real estate board of greater Vancouver numbers. And, and I even took Whistler out of that thing. So just, just saying between 500,000 and 1.5 million, that's 60% of the detached household market. Hey, don't get me wrong. A million dollar or $1.5 million, that's not a cheap thing, and why doesn't everyone go buy it? I get it. But most of those people seem to be, it's not their first home. They don't feel they have the right to. Can you hang on a sec, Phil? In, yeah, sure. I want to get you to hang on because you're, you're just leading into the, to the next part of this conversation because I want to talk about if you're sitting on this equity, what does it really mean to you if you want to cash out or scale back or even move up? So we'll talk about that next on Vancouver Consumer with Phil Legree. He's a North Shore boy, born and bred. He's uh, very experienced, and he's with Keller Williams, and we'll be back in a moment on News Talk 980 CKNW. Well, I like talking to Phil Legree just because he's calm, sort of, and he brings a lot of calm, positive perspective to the world of real estate. Uh, Phil Legree with Keller Williams, uh, based on the North Shore, but you work pretty much the entire Metro Vancouver area. Am I correct? Yeah, sure, that's right, and yeah, absolutely. But but you know, focusing on the North Shore, a lot of people you're talking about cashing out are selling here on the North Shore, and they're moving to other areas. Yeah, and and so this is what I wanted to talk about for a moment, if I could, with you. Uh, 
So you've got this this equity thing, and some people will come at it and say, you know what, this bubble has to burst. It can do nothing but at some point, it has to. The pressure has to get out somehow, and and, and others are saying, you know what, I'm going to sit on this on this pile of cash that I have here for as long as I possibly can, and then when it feels right, I'll scale back and I'll have enough to retire on or travel around the world or buy that yacht or what have you. What's your thinking on, on that aspect? It's a, it's a wonderful way to look at it, too. Is there a bubble? Like the terrible, horrible bubble that was last year. I mean, the year before. I mean, the year before that. I mean, the, it's the predi- people love to throw that prediction out. There's a horrible bubble. The one thing that people aren't uh, focusing on enough is that, like they said, we have mountains on one side and water on the other. Um, and on here in the North Shore, houses, detached houses are going away and they're building townhouses and triplexes, you know, multifamily. So I, I don't see where there's any form of bubble. The prices are forced up. They're there. Uh, and many areas I look at and analyze, there was no bubble. There was numbers of condos in lots of neighborhoods really haven't increased in many, many years. So so where's the bubble? So there, you're always going to have pressure on people wanting to live in detached homes. There will always be a limited supply. That's that's just a fact. We're limited in land. Um, the demographics are changing. The people from other companies countries are changing the way we live. More people are willing to live in a in a small place in a condo uh, with their family. And you know we are at some point going to have to start changing more. My biggest problem with my people that are sitting on that cash and downsizing is where to go. Mm-hmm. And the biggest issue, and I take issue with this with people, is the condo developers. Amazing products being built out there and lots of offerings, but they're building them small. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to go from a three or 4,000 square foot home into an eight or 900 square foot home. But is, is density something we're go- going to have to come around to getting used to? It's a fact an absolute fact it's a fact in every city in the world there's more people coming more people want to live here but it's how we're going to do it i love that some of the plans when i look at what north north the north shore has done north and west vancouver where they've allowed coach houses in the places so uh you know the secondary houses and suites so you can stay in your community and you can live and stay here but like the first timers are having a hard time going oh no it's only one bathroom with two bedrooms on the other side the um um the people downsizing you know they're going to have to get a little more realistic too at a point in time we all want won't want a big house so we need to find something uh, that we can get to and that's a tough thing to do it's a tough thing to find out so many people you would think would be cashing out right now but for the past couple years we're at record low inventory and record high prices well, this is what they're so, saying. They're saying there's nowhere to go. Where do I go? They say if I sell my house and, and I and I have this money at my disposal, suddenly I now I have nowhere to go. I have to go out of town, out of community, and maybe that's not something that they should have to want to do. Well, absolutely. So then the communities have to give them better options. I can't tell you how many places I've sold here in the North Shore and I've bought for people in Coquitlam in Maple Ridge and in different areas, they said, wow, I, you know, I can go out there and get a the same size house or bigger or, you know, or a condo on the river, some lovely things out there. But it's tough. I mean, our lives change. We all age. We need different things. I still think there's a big 
flack from the developers out there, building large enough condos. And I don't mean the couple top penthouse level floors. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I've said this to them, if you build two 800 square foot condos beside each other, you got to put a kitchen in each and you've probably got four bathrooms between them. Wouldn't it make more sense to build one 1,600 square foot condos? And it would sell for higher than the two 800 ones would. Mm-hmm. But they just don't seem to be answering that. Call. Well, and so, I'm, uh, but I'm wondering, in in defense of the developer, and and Lord knows, I'm not the first guy to stand up and, and do that. <laughs> but I mean, they're looking at at densities that the municipalities are asking for. They 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 need this density in order to accommodate and have enough places for people to live in. Yeah, they do. But it's amazing how many complexes have sat um, empty. For long, long periods of time, and it's taken years to sell out some of these complexes because people aren't willing to go down that small. Mm-hmm. So they they sit in the market. They've got deep pockets. They can wait them out. You see some of the ones out there that uh, you know Polygon has done, and they did one over uh, towards Deep Cove there, and and they built a decent sized place with townhouses and condos. It went. It sold because they really put in. You know, I'm not trying to stroke any particular developer, but but I got to give it to them. They really built something that was needed for the community. Okay. Look, a lot of people uh, get set in their ways, and, and I'm thinking that if you've put 30 years or something like that into your home, into your community, and and there's this sense, and, and I don't want to say it's entitlement, but the sense that you belong to this community and that you know you should have a place to go where you can downsize and be comfortable and not have to go many, many, many miles away, go to the island, go up the valley, unless that's where you want to be. And, and there are plenty that do, but some just want to stay close to home. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm born and raised, like you said, on the North Shore. I love it. I'm honored to sell real estate here. And, and I want to I I stay here. I want to maintain myself here. So I know, I've pretty much given in the fact that at a point in time, I'm going to have to go down to an 800 to 12,000 or 1200 square foot condo. It's the fact. It's the reality. I'll probably pick up a lovely view. It'll be a nice concrete building. But, um, you know, I just think there needs to be more and better options like that. Okay. Uh, I want to move on to the next thing because we only got a couple of minutes here. Sure. And, and that is because you're very good at this. And I wanted to get your spin, if you will, or take on the role that social media now plays in real estate. Oh, you know, it's huge. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, and I've said, I'm extremely proud uh, to work for a company that, you know, our Keller Williams model, I'm bragging about us for a minute, we're, we're very much integrity-based, as I believe most companies and most realtors are. We're surrounded by super hardworking per- people. It's expensive to be in this industry. They work hard. They do an amazing job. But there's people as in every industry, that do some things that are absolutely unacceptable. So we've got an expensive real estate market. Everyone wants to blame something. And if we fix one problem, if we fix somebody, what's that term they made up? Shadow flipping. If we fix that, will it affect prices? No. That's, that's, that's just a tiny little percent of something. That's but just bad behavior. That bad behavior. And what industry, who's gone to work and looks at their boss and says, they're making not enough money, and my boss's boss doesn't make it. You know, we're real people out there. There's good and bad in every industry. But the social media sort of lashing out to blame people and painting the whole industry with, uh, with um, 
you know, a bad brush there. It really looks bad. But I'll tell you, I'm in a lot of groups where the agents just rage against other agents doing things that are unethical. Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that coming out there, there was one in the newspaper the other day about somebody doing something about threatening. You don't know if that's true, but I'll tell you what, every agent I know was reaching out saying, don't suspend this person. Don't look into it. If it's true, they should be fired, forbidden from ever doing real estate transactions again, and uh, and have legal criminal actions taken. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was missed in the media, and I know you're going to go a second, was, was an agent. They said, oh, they've only got a $10,000 fine, like if we do something bad and, the, and they can put it. Well, that was actually not true. It was always three times $10,000. It's $30,000. Not everyone's making a million dollars in real estate, not by a long stretch. You've got to leave it there, my friend. Yep. Uh, you know what? Sometimes doing the right thing is not sexy, and yeah. uh, we'll leave it there. But I appreciate your time, and, I, and I, as I said off the top, I appreciate your, your attitude and your, your positive outlook because it, it is a pause of reality that we need to take every now and again. Phil Legree is on the North Shore. He's with Keller Williams. He's been in the real estate business for a number of years and has been very successful. Where is the best place to reach you? Reach me? Yes. You, you can always get me, Phil Legree, at 604-518-1644 or com. Thank you. We'll talk again to Phil Legree. Uh, my name is Ian Power. My thanks to Amila Bamji and Matt Hyland, our technical producers. CKNW Weekend with Shane Foxman is next on News Talk 980 CKNW.